I don't know what the hardest thing about prayer is for you. For me, the hardest thing about prayer is praying. Like, just just doing it. Just taking the time, making the effort, focusing my thoughts, opening my mouth, keeping my train of thought, engaging, thinking about what I'm saying, focusing, communicating, so that I have prayed until I have prayed. That's what one of my pastors used to say. Pray until you've prayed. Sometimes it might be 15, 20, 30 minutes of me doing something before I pray. And maybe for that first 30 minutes I've been talking. Pray until you've prayed. Seems like there are a thousand obstacles to praying. To me, it seems like there are just so many obstacles to actually getting to that point where I am in communion with my Father. My wandering mind, I question my own motives while I'm praying. I'm not feeling like God is like there, meaning I, I'm, not, I'm not sensing whether or not I'm talking to God or talking to myself. I'm just talking. Words are coming out of my mouth. Sometimes I wonder how to start a conversation with a king. I wonder if my if if the way that I'm talking to him is fake. Oh father. I never call my dad on the phone and say, Oh father. It's Jeremy. <laughs> but then again, he's a king. He's a king. So I, I maybe you talk to a king a little bit differently than you would your own dad. Maybe. I mean, these are the kinds of things I'm thinking about while I'm praying. Which means I'm not yet quite praying. A lot of times, at least. I use meaningless words or phrases. Like the word just, sometimes. Oh, Father. I I just want to ask that you would save my children. Just just that? Just a little salvation, that's all? <laughs> it's a throwaway word. Unless, unless, you're, unless you're trying to um, uh, indicate the simplicity of the request. Something like that. So these kinds of things trip me up. I, I want to pray. But the hardest thing for me to do is to just get to the point of praying. Where I'm engaged with my Father. And I don't know what the hardest thing might be for you. You probably have your own patterns. And this morning as we talk about prayer, I'm not going to promise you the silver bullet that enables you to pray, that, you know, the thing that finally frees you up to be able to pray. But what I do want to do is look at something that Jesus specifically taught about prayer in the midst of the most famous sermon in history, the Sermon on the Mount. And I trust that if Jesus specifically taught about this in the most famous 
sermon in the history of mankind and if it was preserved for us in the scriptures so that we the people of God have access to the teachings of Christ on prayer that at the very least the things that he addresses in the Sermon on the Mount on prayer at the very least are super important and that we're getting to something here we're dealing with something here in Matthew 7 that is fundamental Now, perhaps it might not be the most fundamental thing. It might be. I don't know. But it might not be. It's at least among the most important fundamental things that can be said about prayer. It's at least among them. So, that's what I want to do. Go to Matthew 7 and look at what Jesus gives to us here. Among other things, he presents us with two motivations to pray. Two motivations to pray in Matthew 7, verses 7 to 11. But before we get to those motivations, I just want to look at the call to pray. Commandments, actually. Three commandments in verse 7. Ask. 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 It's a commandment. Ask. Be asking is probably a better translation. In, in, in Koine Greek, common Greek at the time, the present tense, which this command is in the present tense, it indicated continuous action, ongoing action. Be asking, seeking, and knocking. Be doing that. Be an asker. Be a seeker. Be a knocker. Ask, make requests. You do not have, James says, chapter 4, verse 2, you do not have because you do not ask. You don't even ask. Jesus says, do it. Make a request. Ask. Be seeking. When you desire something, come to God in hopes that He will provide the fulfillment of what you're seeking. Seek. Go after it. Ask Him. Seek Him. And knock. Why do you knock? Wait, what's the, what's the image here? Right? Why would you ever do that? In hopes that someone will open. You don't walk up to somebody's house and... You know, that knock was for you guys. Just it, 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 It's a request of some sort. Ask, seek, knock. All three of these actions are driving at the same thing. They're empty-handed pursuits. Meaning, I'm not coming to give you anything. I'm coming because I'm in need. I'm asking for something. I'm seeking something. I'm requesting that you open this door. I don't have anything to give. I'm in need. Ask. Seek. Knock. Do that, Jesus says. Go to God. Ask Him. Seek it from Him. Approach Him for it. Knock on His door. To which the skeptical heart might say, Yeah, right. I wouldn't even ask Mayor Bloomberg. 
What, why, why would I go to the king of the universe expecting that he's going to respond when I ask him or seek him or knock at his door? What, perhaps a skeptical heart might feel that way. If all you heard was ask, seek, knock. But Jesus gives some motivation. He gives incentives for why you can do this. Promises. Two promises, two motivations, two incentives. And the first one is in verses 7 to 8. Motivation number one, God promises to respond. God promises to respond. Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. That's the incentive, right? Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. Well, that makes me want to ask, seek, and knock. Verse 8. For, so here's the ground of why you should ask, seek, and knock. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So Jesus gives the same motivation two times. He gives it in verse 7, and then he gives it again in verse 8. And the motivation is this, same motivation. God's going to respond. He's going to. Make your request to God, He will respond. Now, let me briefly answer the question that everybody asks at this point. There's actually a more fundamental question I learned today. But everybody at least asks this question at this point. Is Jesus promising that God will do whatever we ask Him to? Like He's some genie in a bottle. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and and you will find. Knock on the door, it will be open to you. It, it sounds like Jesus is promising that God will do whatever we ask of him. And, and the answer to that question is no. Is, that's not what Jesus is saying. And, and the reason we know is because of the broader New Testament context in which this occurs. Okay, so, so I'm just going gonna, gonna to try to answer this question so that we can get it off the table so that we can really deal with what Jesus is after here. But I just want to, I want to let you know the New Testament does put up some guardrails so that we don't take this to mean something that it doesn't mean. We don't get our expectations on something that's kind of ridiculous. James 4.2, I just went to this verse. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So, yes... Ask and know that you can ask wrongly. So it's important that that is on the table. That's a guardrail for us so we don't fall off the cliff. Or 1 John 5.14. And this is what, I'm sorry, this is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. That's an important verse. So ask... And yes, the New Testament provides some guardrails. Hopefully that, that helps our hearts go, okay, so this isn't saying what it almost sounds like it's saying. So let's just take that off the table. It's, it's our safety net. We're going to set it right over here. And now I just want to hear what Jesus is saying. What is Jesus saying? Because it's fair, I think, to say that Jesus wants to broaden our willingness to believe that God wants to answer our prayers. 
He wants to broaden your willingness to believe that. The promise of God's answer to our asking, seeking, knocking is intentionally broad right here. Jesus intentionally leaves it open, sounding like there's just a very general promise that God is going to answer prayer. That's exactly what Jesus wants you to believe. So we can't let our fear of overstating what Jesus is saying here to be an impediment to our ability to hear this very, very encouraging news. God wants to answer our prayers. That's what Jesus wants to tell you. He wants to answer your prayers. God's general disposition toward His people is to give to us when we ask to provide for us when we seek Him, to open the door for us when we knock. That's God's general disposition. So, at this point in my sermon prep, yesterday, I said, God, I just, will you please give me an illustration? In fact, I'm asking you, I'm seeking you and I'm knocking on the door. Will you please give me an illustration to make this point that your general disposition toward us is to give to us? And I didn't get any kind of answer. And so I was going through my notes again today. I got to this point. I was like, oh yeah, I forgot. I wanted to illustrate something here. God, will you... Okay, remember yesterday I asked. I'm asking again, Father. You say... That if I ask, I will receive. If I seek, I will find. If I knock, the door will be opened. I'm asking, seeking, knocking, and asking you, requesting, please provide me an illustration. And sometimes when I am praying to God and asking for some sort of insight, the next thing that happens is I hear my wife's voice. And so, sure enough, out in the hallway at this point, I hear Amy doing something. I said, oh, I got you. Okay, Amy. Sweetheart, would you be willing to come in here? I have a question for you. Um, can you help me? I kind of explained to her the situation. That, you know, general disposition to give to us. Um, uh, so can you think of any stories or anything you know, that would kind of help illustrate this? And as I'm talking to her, so I'm sitting at my desk here. I hear Amy. I turn around. She comes in. As I'm talking to her, the brand new puppy dog is laying on the floor. And I notice he's got this black spot on his rib cage. And I'm like, is that a tick? It's a tick. Uh, so then, then the sermon prep at that moment is kind of like off to the side for a second. Okay, I'm doing Google searches. How do you get a tick out of your dog's skin? And, um, and I was like, I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God if he will take, help me get this tick out. And, and, all the Google, and all the sites, and my dad taught me this growing up, all the sites say, make sure you get the head out. Don't want to leave the head inside the skin. So God, Father, I'm asking, seeking and knocking, will you please help me get this tick out of my dog? Because um, from what I understand from the way that Alex Lee talks about ticks, if it stays in here, my dog will turn into a gremlin. So please uh, help me get the tick out and to get the head of the tick out. And so I've got the tweezers. I'm gently pulling. I'm doing all these, you know, twisted in a circle, da 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 And snap, 
the head is stuck, the tick is out. Snap the head right off. I can see the head in the skin. Dang it. Okay, I've got two problems now. One, my dog is going to turn into gizmo. And two, I don't... What, what am I supposed to do with my sermon today? And then it struck me, this is actually the fundamental question that people have about a text like this. It's not, it's not usually at least, I don't think, maybe this comes up if you're talking theology, is God saying he will do whatever you ask? And we say, well, let's put up some theological guardrails and say, well, if you ask according to his will or if you ask wrongly, you know, those are important things to consider. But the real problem right now in people's hearts with this text is that I have asked and I have sought and I have knocked and it didn't work. I mean, this isn't a matter sometimes of just, well, just wait and see what happens. No, I just pulled the tick's head off. There's nothing to wait for. It was not answered. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be given to you. That's not what I asked for. Or ask and it will be given. That's not what I asked for. So now what do you do? How do you preach this text now? Can you relate to this? The the big problem in people's hearts is that it sounds like God's going to answer and the reality is, in my experience, there have been times where He has not. So what's this really saying? You feel that? I hope you... If you have, if you have prayed before and made requests, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Be asking. Be asking. Seeking. Knocking. doesn't say ask one time. doesn't say seek one time. It doesn't say knock one time. It says you should be a person who is asking. Let asking be the habit of your life. And you know what? If asking is the habit of your life, test this. Test this and see if this is not true. If you are a person who asks and asks and asks and asks all the days of your life and you look back on your life, here's what you will see. He is a giver. All my life I was an asker and He has proven to be a giver. That's his disposition. Now that doesn't mean that every single time I pray that the tick's head would not break off, that God is going to answer that prayer. But if I allow myself to view my view of God through that one experience, I will stop asking. I won't be an asker. I won't be a seeker. I won't be a knocker. Be asking. Let asking be your habit, and you will see that God's habit is to answer. That's the general pattern you will see in your life. I I promise you, if you are in Christ, and you are asking, what you will see 
is that he answers. It's a, it's a trend. You will see that your father is a giver. So that's how God answered my request for an illustration. Which was really cool because in giving me the... All I wanted was just a little story. But then God brought into my path what the real problem is for people. You need a story to just let you know that God is has a general disposition towards giving. You need to know that if there has been a time when you have asked and he did not give, don't let that incident be your whole lens. You are to be an asker and you will see that he will be a giver. Motivation number one, God promises to respond. Motivation number two is the fatherhood of God. Now, let me set this up before we look at the verse here. I'm going to talk about something for a moment here. And I don't want to get all academic, so I'm just going to use this little phrase one time. Something that theologians refer to, and maybe linguists as well, the analogical use of language. The analogical use of language. And the gist of it goes something like this. God is, in many ways, other than us. He alone is uncreated. God alone is independent. He doesn't depend on anything. That's, that's different than any, anything else in the universe. Everything is dependent. Your next breath depends on God sustaining your life. But God is independent. He, he relies on no one. He relies on nothing. He's self-existent. He is eternal. With regards to anything good, God is quantitatively and qualitatively superior in every way. He is transcendent, theologians would say. That is, he's unique. He's different. He's singular. God is in many ways other than us, and yet he is not entirely other. Meaning that there are at least some points of similarity between God and humanity. At least some points of similarity That's one of the implications of being made in His image. There are things about God that are analogous to things about me, things about us, or things in our world. God is like or similar to us. We are like, similar to Him. Which means, okay, now let's get back to language. It means that God can teach us about Himself by referring to himself in language and concepts that we are familiar with from the creation. God can say things to us about himself and use language that is meaningful to us because there's a similarity. So God can say things like, he's a bridegroom to his people. He's a king, a shepherd, a physician. God has said it places to have a face. 
or eyes. Well, God doesn't really have eyes, like eyeballs. God is spirit. But there's something about God that he's trying to communicate to us that when he says, my eyes search to and fro, we're like, yeah, I get that. I can, I can understand that. He has a nose, a mouth, hands, a heart. He is described as seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sitting, walking. He is like a lion, an eagle, a lamb, a hen, a fire, the sun, the light, a torch, a rock, a tower, a shield, and he has a shadow, Psalm 91.1. When God speaks to human beings about himself, he does so in ways that make sense to us, so that what he says has meaning. We, we can start to comprehend elements about him because he's speaking to us in baby talk, John Calvin said. He condescends to our level and uses things that we can comprehend. Now, that doesn't mean we have exhaustive knowledge of God, but it means that communication is possible. We can get some things about what He's saying and who He is. And the concept that He's going to use right here in Matthew 7 is the concept of fatherhood. Fatherhood. God is a father. Now, understanding how the fatherhood of God motivates us to pray hinges on three things that Jesus brings up here in the text. You've got to understand three things about God's fatherhood if you want for this to motivate you to pray. Number one, Jesus wants to make us aware, or he at least appeals to our awareness of normative human fatherhood. Number two, Jesus wants to make us aware of the fact that God is our Heavenly Father. And number three, Jesus wants to make us aware of the goodness of our Heavenly Father. So let's just read verses 9 and 10 and get our bearings here. Jesus has just said, Ask, seek, knock, because if you seek, you'll find. If you ask, you'll be, it'll be given. If you seek, you'll find. If you knock, it'll be opened. Verse 9, Or which one of you... If his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. So the first thing Jesus does here, in order to motivate us to pray, is he appeals to our knowledge of human fatherhood. He appeals to our knowledge of our human awareness of fatherhood. If we want to understand something about the fatherhood of God, we need to understand the nature of human fatherhood. Some of us perhaps have not experienced normal human fatherhood. Normal human fatherhood is kind of a subjective idea. Some of us have had perhaps dads who weren't around at all, or dads that were emotionally distant, or dads who were drunk, or dads who were stressed out and unable to relate to us. But that doesn't mean that we've lost our ability to comprehend what a normal human father should be doing for his children. We can still have some concept of what a father should be doing. So if you had a human father who was 
not supposed to be doing what he should have been doing, and you're aware that he shouldn't, that he wasn't doing what he should have been doing, then it indicates that you have some awareness of what a father ought to be, which means you can track with what Jesus is saying here. Because what Jesus is saying here, what Jesus is appealing to here is just what's normal for a father. I think we all have some sense of that. So you don't have to have had an amazing family life in order to follow Christ here. All you need is to know what a father ought to do for his children. Namely, a normal human father provides for the basic needs of his children. That's what a normal human father does. That's what most dads do. It's it's the instinct of a man, for lack of a better word. It's, it's, it's hardwired into manhood to provide for the needs of your children. And in Galilean culture, that meant that the father provides bread and fish, the staples of everyday life. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Just the staples of Galilean life, bread and fish. That's normal, fatherly activity. When I have a basic need, the Father provides for me. He doesn't, in cruelty, give me useless and harmful lookalikes, like stones, snakes. He doesn't give me stones and snakes as some sort of cruel trick. And the point here is simply to see in verses 9 and 10 how absolutely ridiculous it would be for a human father to give his children things that are harmful for them in place of the things that they just need for everyday life. What kind of what kind of father would give their kids who every single day need fish and bread? What kind of father would give them stones and snakes instead? Every single night our little 3-year-old Emma gets a cup of milk before she goes to bed. What kind of father would be like, hey, Amy, check this out. Put lighter fluid in there. It, we, we just don't, we don't do that kind of thing. Now, I'm, I know there are probably some demented exceptions to that rule out there. But that's just not what fathers do. And Jesus is appealing to our awareness of normal fatherhood. A father would never, ever, ever do that kind of thing. And now, Jesus appeals to our awareness of God as our heavenly father. A human father wouldn't do that kind of thing. God is your heavenly Father. Read with me, if you will, verse 11. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven? Your Father. Your Father. It's not a general reference to God's fatherhood of all creation or fatherhood of all people or something like that. Jesus doesn't ever refer to His Father as the Father of all people. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is only our Father if we access Him through Jesus, the Mediator. 
No one comes to the Father except, Jesus says, through me. Jesus makes a way for His Father to be our Father so that we have access to Him through the work of Christ. John 14, 21, He who loves me will be loved by my Father. If you're in Christ, you love Christ, you're united to Him by faith, the Father has a special fatherly love for you. 1423 of the book of John. My Father will love Him and we will come to Him and make our home with Him. Or Jesus says to Mary of Magdala in John 20:17, Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father. God is our Father. And when Jesus speaks of God's fatherhood, it's a specific reference to this very special relationship that has been brought into existence because of what Jesus has done. We have been reconciled so that God is now in an intimate relationship with us to the extent that the nature of that relationship to God requires the use of of a concept that has such a sense of intimacy and provision and kindness and loyalty and leadership and protection and devotion that it has to be a family term that he uses. We have been brought into the most intimate circle of the greatest being in the universe. And King doesn't cover everything that can be said about our relationship to Him. And neither does Shepherd, or Lion, or Physician, or Fire. They tell us something about our relationship to Him, but they don't tell us everything. We must also know that He is our Father. That doesn't capture everything either, but it tells us something very important. God can be your Father. If you don't know Christ, and you don't know God as your Father, Jesus has made a way for that to be possible. Can you believe that? That God can be your Father. And if you're a Christian, here's the great danger, is that we've heard it so much, we're not, all that's stunned by it anymore. So we need sermons like this to remind us of what an incredible thing it is that God is our Father. I was thinking of Alexander the Great this week. Anyone whose name ends with the Great has made some sort of incredible impact on the world. Alexander the Great is considered by many to be the greatest military commander of all time. Unparalleled in history. By the age of 30, he had created one of the greatest empires in ancient history. When he came into power, he immediately killed every threat to his throne. Well, he didn't kill. He got rid of every threat to his throne. Killed most of them. Every rival. He was never defeated in battle. That's spectacular record. Alexander the Great was never defeated in a battle. We could say all kinds of things about the role that he played in the Hellenization of the world. That is, Alexander the Great intentionally spread the Greek language and culture throughout his empire, 
which led to a language throughout his empire called Koine Greek, which was the same language that the New Testament was written in, which meant that when the New Testament was written, it spread like wildfire. Alexander the Great. Very few human beings in the history of mankind that have had the kind of impact on the world like Alexander the Great. And could you imagine if he were your father? Imagine the resources that are available to secure your safety and provision. I mean, people just don't mess with Alexander the Great or his kids. Well, I, actually, both his kids were killed. So the analogy breaks down, okay? <laughs> I said, to, I said this to Amy yesterday. I was like, could you imagine if he were your father? And she's like, well, you'd probably never see him. <laughs> okay, well, imagine, imagine if he were your father and he were there for you. <laughs> Have you ever thought about what it must be like to be the child of some great person of influence? The Obama daughters, right? going to say anything about Obama's politics. This is not a political statement. I'm talking about the office of the President of the United States of America has two little girls. Two? Little girls. And he's not just the President. He's not just the Commander-in-Chief for these girls. He doesn't just sign laws and meet with world leaders. He's not only the Chief Executive and the Foreign Policy Director and the legislative leader of the United States of America. He's my dad. And the one who exhaustively knows all things and the one who is supreme in power over the entire universe the one whose wisdom is immeasurable, the only uncreated being. That, should, I, that blows my mind. An uncreated being that has ever or will ever exist. The only eternal being. The Lord of creation. The giver of life. The one who ordains every movement of every molecule in every corner of the universe. If you are in Christ, He's not only your God, He's not only your Creator, He's not only your King, your Maker, your Shepherd, your Rock, your Refuge. He's your Father. He's your Father. I don't know if there is a more significant thing that could be said, a concept that could possibly communicate more clearly to us the magnitude of the intimate favor and love and care that God has for us than to say we are in His family and to say, now I am your dad. We've got a few couples in our congregation who are in the process of adoption. They haven't, they haven't met these children yet. There will be a day, Lord willing, very soon, where for the very first time, they will hold this baby in their arms. And the gentleman will say, 
son. I am your papa. I don't know if you could say anything more significant to him. God is your Papa. So we have now, Jesus has provided for us some awareness of normal human fatherhood, and he has made us aware of the fact that God is our Father. There's something else that we need to understand about God's fatherhood if it's going to motivate us to pray. We don't need to just understand normal human fatherhood. We don't need to just understand that God is our Father, but we need to understand that God, the one who is our Heavenly Father, is good. He's a, he's a good Father. Now, something interesting is happening here in verse 11. Jesus is on to something in our hearts. He spots something that he's going after. And he's going to expose it and correct it. The whole flavor of this passage is trying to move us away from some really ugly assumptions that we have about our Father. The whole flavor of the section. Like you might just want to ask Jesus, are you, are you trying to say something? Do you see something in my heart? Because the way you're talking here makes it sound like you think I have a problem with my father. The way Jesus does this, he appeals to what we know about our, new, our, normal, our normal human fatherhood, pointing out that fathers don't give stones and snakes to their children. Right? Normal human fathers don't give stones and snakes to their kids instead of food. Appeals to that. And then the second thing he does is point out that these human fathers who don't do that kind of thing, they're evil. Verse 11. If you then who are evil, normal human fathers who don't do that kind of stuff, Those are evil guys. They've got sinful hearts. Normal human fathers who would never do this kind of thing are evil people. And then Jesus takes it home by affirming what should already be obvious to us, namely that our Heavenly Father is good. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Evil guys don't even do what you think your Father is about to do to you. If evil people don't do that kind of thing, how much more will your Heavenly Father give good things to you? Come on! He wants to do good for you. The Father loves to give good things to those who ask Him. So this second motivation is actually very close to the first one. God has a general disposition of wanting to do good for us and wanting to provide good things for us because He's our Father. 
So what's Jesus exposing in the heart? What's he exposing? Remember, let's, re- let's remember that the big picture here is he's trying to motivate us to pray. He's trying to help us pray. And he's promised, first of all, that God will respond. That was the first motivation. And the second motivation is that God will respond according to his fatherly goodness. Now, I think there is, I think that reveals that there are two corresponding problems with our hearts that Jesus is addressing. One that corresponds to the fact that God will respond, and one that corresponds to the fact that when he does respond, he will respond with fatherly goodness. Those are corrections of two problems. And the first problem is this. It's a false belief that God will not respond when we go to him in prayer. That's the first problem I think that Jesus is trying to dig up here. You don't think that he'll even respond. But I'm telling you, ask, seek, and knock. Because if you do, he will answer. He's trying to correct that false belief. You don't think he's going to answer. I'm telling you, he will. That's the first false belief. And the second false belief is that if he does respond, he will be cruel when he responds. And Jesus is exposing the tendency of the human heart to think that God, when he answers, does so with some kind of cruelty that we wouldn't even attribute to an evil human father. Something about the human heart has this disposition to distrust God. God is not the way that we tend to think of Him. He's actually much better than what we believe. He's much better. Much more giving. Much more loving. Much more kind. So this is all at once, I think, very convicting and very comforting. It's very convicting that we would suspect our Heavenly Father of doing things that our evil earthly fathers wouldn't even do. And it's very comforting that God, our Father, is not what we make Him out to I think that's very comforting. That the God that I make Him out to be, not guilty. That's not me. You've created some monstrosity that's not even me. I love you. I'm your Father. So many of our ideas about God are misconstrued. And the God that we're disillusioned with when it comes to prayer is a God that we've made up. Not a God that not the God who actually is. So sometimes the most practical thing we can do is to believe something different. Jesus wants to help you pray. And the way that he does it is just say, hey, you've got some false beliefs. You need, you, you need to believe something different. God wants to bring healing to our prayer life, I believe, today. I, I, I do think that probably God is very specifically wanting to help some people who think that God doesn't answer prayer and think that if he does, the way that he's going to do it is going to... Um, be so hurtful. And I think Jesus just wants to say, He's your Father. He loves you. 
So I'm going to go ahead and invite the worship team back up as I close here. You know where I think a lot of the doubt comes from? It's the failed prayer experience. You've asked and he didn't answer the way that you thought that he would. You perceive unanswered prayers as prayers that were answered with cruelty or bounced off of heaven's doors. And some of us look at the ways in which God has answered our prayers and we think, sure looks like stones and snakes to me. God, would you please give me an illustration? Cool, I'm going to kill your dog. That'll help you illustrate. I mean, it's hard at that moment to not feel like that's just a, that's a stone or a snake. And the challenge for us is to make sure that we don't interpret our lives that way. See, God is the interpreter of our lives. God is the interpreter of our answered prayers. And if Jesus says, the Father will not give you stones and snakes, then go with his interpretation of your situation. It's not stones and snakes. I know it might feel that way. I know it might look that way. But it's not. Because our Father does not provide stones and snakes for his children. The challenge is to interpret your life through the grid of the scriptures. Let God be the interpreter. And remember that he's your father. He's not a wrathful, distant, unapproachable king. Jesus canceled whatever issue stood between you and God. He canceled it. nailed it to the cross. That's gone. You don't need to think of him that way. You don't need to think of him as that kind of father. You've been adopted. This is the kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. So, new hope. knowing that God answers and knowing that if you're in Christ that he is your father be asking and be seeking and be knocking ask, seek, knock ask, seek, knock let it be the habit of your life and know that your Father loves to give you peace.